Welcome to the Zen Habits Podcast, where we dive into how to work with uncertainty, resistance, and fear around our meaningful work. This is for anyone who wants to create an impact in the world and cares deeply enough to do the work. I'm your host, Leo Babauta, creator of the Zen Habits blog. here with someone I consider at this point a friend, but you've been someone in our community um, for a little while now, or a good while now, and someone who I've uh, come to trust and respect as a leader within the community. Uh, Joshua Goldberg, welcome. Thanks so much, Leo. Um, so I had you, I invited you on without knowing exactly what we would talk about, but I have a sense that you've done a lot of work both for with yourself and of course, out in the community um, that will be enlightening in terms of what we're talking about with doing, you know, work with resistance and fear and uncertainty. And as I talked to you about before we started recording, um, the I believe that a lot of us will come to that with a certain perspective. And I think that we don't understand that there might be other challenges or other perspectives that... Uh, that we don't have. And so um, I wanted to talk to people like yourself who have a little bit more of an understanding of that so that we could shine some light on that. I think it's fascinating. And I, I uh, want to dive into that with you. Thanks, Leo. I think the first time we sort of met uh -huh. in this long distance kind of meeting was some years ago, I wrote you critical about one of your Zen Hobbits blog posts about how it was reflecting a lot of privilege and how that was mm -hmm. an experience of everyone. And I, I really admire that over the years of us getting to know each other, you've always been so open to mm. learning and questioning what you're not thinking about or what you're not considering. So I'm really delighted that you've offered me this uh, chance to talk with you about it. Well, yeah, thank you for that acknowledgement. Uh, and what I'd like to acknowledge about you is that you've always come to this with such compassion, like a gentle way of reflecting, like, oh, you have some privilege here. <laughs> like there's stuff you're not seeing. And I, I always felt like it's such a, the way that you approached it made it easier for me to like be able to like take a look at this hmm. and be open about it. So thank That's you. That's great. I mean, it's not like I'm the world's most marginalized person. You know, I have white skin privilege and I have some class privilege. And so I've learned mm -hmm. a lot from people over the years about my own failings and where I can do better. And people have been so gentle and compassionate with me as well as firm, you know, and mm. like really helping me step up, believing I could do better instead of just writing me off as, you know, you're just another person who's never going to do better. So I, yeah, right. I come at it from both experiences. Okay, great. Let's actually talk about some of those perspectives because um, there might be a number here to talk about, and I'd like to just at least touch on some of them. Sure. Um, so you, one of the places that you've done a lot of work in is uh, like social justice. Um, and as you mentioned before we start recording, there's like anti-poverty, you've worked with, um, well, actually I'll let you tell, you know, what, tell me some of the social justice kind of work that you've done in the past. So I grew up in a politically conscious family and cultural community, um, which means mm -hmm. that from the age of being a young kid, I was quite involved in political work and supported by my parents, my grandparents, mm -hmm. and also the larger cultural community around me. Um, mm -hmm. and then as a, as a teenager and adult, I started becoming more interested in honing in on who the most marginalized people were in society. Um, and as I was coming to terms with being a transgender person, um, I did work on that for a while. But what really interested me was people who were sort of moving between life in prison and life unhoused. So moving mm. back and forth between the street community and prison. And mm. um, yeah, people living outside just we're experiencing such a grind from day to day that I, I wanted to support as best I could, but also that's who I found most resonance with for myself, specifically mm. people who use drugs and are living outside. That's where I felt mm. most at home and felt most embraced for who I was instead of having to live up to really? a particular standard of who I should be. And so that's where I also found sort of my um, heart connections with people. Wow, that's uh, brings up a million questions now. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I think that's quite fascinating because I think for a lot of us, you know, I include myself and in, in people who've grown up with privilege, we uh, we actually really less we feel less comfortable out, you know, in those kinds of places with those that uh, that community. 
And the fact that you feel more at home and embraced there, um, I find that to be fascinating and uh, really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, there's. it's not that it's always easy um, mm -hmm. because I have a home and lots of, you know, lots of wealth compared to most people who are unhoused. And so navigating across those lines of power and privilege, and especially up here in Canada where I live, poverty is so intensely racialized as well. So it's often mm. Indigenous and Black people who are the most marginalized, both in prison system and um, in terms of the street community. So Definitely not just in Canada. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not that there's some like idyllic, you know, we all hold hands and play the guitar or something. But I think that within the street community, at the time that I started meeting people and getting to know and love people in it, there was a real sense mm. of collectivity and looking after each other and a deep ethic of mm. care. That's changed, um, just like it's oh, changed it? in society in general. There's much more individualism now and um, people sort of hustling to survive at each other's expense mm. now. But when I was really diving in in my early 20s, yeah, just the, the generosity and care, I didn't see that in mainstream society. And I didn't see acceptance of people like me either. Like in normal society, you know, in normie world, I was a bit of a freak because at that time, being visibly transgender wasn't maybe as understood as it is now, um, which obviously there's lots of backlash happening now, but you know, 27, 28 years ago, like I was the only person in the city who was going through that, who was out and open about it. And people mm. in the street community just didn't care. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like they really? really didn't care at all. They cared about uh, how I acted rather than who I was, which for me mm. was very liberating. And it's, Wow. I still think of people from that time and the gifts that they gave me around accepting who I was and um, not being afraid to be who I was. I'm finding myself very, very moved by that. Um, that's that's a really, really beautiful thing. What an incredible like lesson of self-acceptance to be able to to get in a place that I think most of us would find um, surprising. And that's just because we're, we don't know much about it. Okay, so you've mentioned... A number of perspectives that I'd love to like touch on. Um, so there's you've mentioned being a transgender person. Uh, you've mentioned people are unhoused and you know with dealing with poverty, um, people in prison. I, I guess racial um, perspectives as well. So people who are black and indigenous. I feel like there's one more that I'm missing that you've mentioned, but <laughs> it all intersects. I, it, it all I intersects. mean, so many okay. of the people who are in that situation are also disabled. So ah. a huge percentage of people who are moving between prisons and the street are, are have disabilities, often multiple disabilities. So again, for me, there was that point of connection. Yeah. Did you ever, as someone moving into these spaces, um, I know that you've talked about uh, feeling embraced. Did you ever have to deal with your own uncertainty and discomfort of stepping into these spaces? Oh, sure. And I still do. I, I mean, it's it's not like once you experience uncertainty and then, you know, you're done. It's, a <laughs> it's not a linear process like that. So Absolutely. like we've re recently moved to a new city. I don't know folks in the street community here. And so, you know, moving around downtown, just going about doing my thing, you know, I'll often stop and chat with people and I feel shy and awkward and nervous, even though I've been doing that kind of stuff for 30 plus years, you know, yeah. and some of my deepest relationships have been with folks in the street community, but I still, mm. you know, it's meeting someone new for the first time. I still feel uncertain and awkward, uh, just like I did back at the start. But that would be true of meeting anyone anywhere. You know, I'm true. going to a new rec center and I'm meeting people in my Zumba class there and I'm shy and awkward and nervous. So it's not like I'm more nervous or more uncertain when I'm meeting folks who are unhoused. Okay. I've, I actually find it easier, honestly, because my experience, not wanting to stereotype, I mean... There's great diversity, but most of the people who I end up chatting with are folks who are really gregarious and outgoing and actually oh, want really? to have a conversation um, oh, that's cool. and are funny, you know, like to survive, you have to be, you have to be able to find the humor. And so it's often quite easy to have those conversations compared to like when I try and interact with someone who wants to talk about their recent cruise ship trip or something that like I, I can't relate to at all. And. I think I probably look quite stiff and awkward. Whereas when it's someone talking about stuff that I know about, you know, it's easy to share a laugh over that. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you've found to help to deal with that discomfort of, you know, going up to people and starting a conversation? I just don't take myself that seriously. And, you know, I can kind of tell like who wants to talk and who doesn't want to talk. I'll often look people in the eye and smile. 
And mm. um, if someone, that's often a, an experience people don't have. So sometimes they're taken aback and I can see the kind of like, why are you looking at me? What's going on here? But mm. then the smile happens and then they're like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> often we'll start talking and often will ask me for something. Um, like, do I have a smoke? Do I have bus tickets or whatever? Um, mm. And if I do, then I say yes. And if I don't, then I say no. And uh, so we just have a really straightforward initial interaction. And often people will offer me a blessing, um, like say, I hope you have a really good day or, you know, just wish me something well. And that offers an opportunity to wish them something well, which then again facilitates some kind of connection. So it's just about kind of reading reading the situation, but from a very human perspective, not a like mm. analytic in your head, but like human to human, you know, what's going on mm. here? Is it someone who wants to chat or is it someone who's doing their thing and doesn't want to be interrupted? Just like, again, you know, when I'm walking down the street in our neighborhood, there's people sitting on their porch and sometimes I'll stop and have a chat. And sometimes it's clear to me that they don't want to chat with me. So respecting that. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Is there, you know, as someone who would like to start conversations more um, with with people who are unhoused or, or um, facing these kinds of challenges, like, is there anything that you would tell me? Like, is uh, is it something that that we sh- we could all be doing? Uh, you know, even if we don't have thirty years of experience, um, yeah, just to be a human. You know, like if you stop and say hi to someone at the grocery store, then you can stop and say hi to someone who's unhoused. We're all mm. people. But mm. I think so often there's this kind of like worry about doing it wrong. And then the stigma comes up and like, what if they ask me for something and I don't want to give it to them? And like, oh, mm. so that's all just nonsense, to be honest. You know, <laughs> it's exactly the same kind of exchange as you would have with any other stranger. And you do that probably many times a day. Mm. So, it, you know, I'm someone who's actually really painfully shy and and I don't have probably as many social interactions with people as as many more outgoing folks do. But, you know, for me walking a 15 minute stretch from here to the rec center, I'll, I'll say hi to lots of people because there's so many friendly people in this neighborhood. And we might just stop and have like a two second chat, you know, how's your day going? And being prepared to actually hear the answer to that, not just like keeping it at a very surface. Oh, it's fine. How about you? But like, really, how, how are things going? And sometimes they're not going well and people are in a lot of distress. Um, but that's okay. You know, there's no, you don't have to rescue anyone. You don't have to fix anything. It's just being with a human being, Mm. just like we are, you know, whether it's with our family or loved ones or any random stranger anywhere, it's not different than that. That's so great. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. I I feel a bit more enlightened and I just love the, the, such a human approach. Uh, I think we forget, we forget how simple that can be. And we, like you said, we add a bunch of nonsense and that's such a great reminder just for like our whole lives. We add so much nonsense on top of stuff. And so I I love that. Is there, you know, you've listened to my podcast episodes so far where I've been talking about resistance and uncertainty and fear and purpose work and things like that. And is there anything that you, you wish you could just like scream at me? (laughs) <laughs> like that I don't understand about people who are d- facing extreme poverty or in prison or, you know, dealing with addiction or anything like that um, about any of these topics? Well, I think my observation of the folks who have kind of come forward in your community, so I know a little bit about them, is that mm-hmm. a lot of people are are dealing with um, the same kind of mix as I am, like some privilege on the one hand and some mm-hmm. experiences of suffering on the other hand, and suffering driven by external causes and conditions. And, you know, I'm struck by how many people in your community are dealing with serious illness or um, that actually one of the ways I first kind of connected with your social media community was I was looking at your Facebook and I was griping to myself like, oh, this is all people who are, you know, wanting to like make more money or do better. And then there was someone with very late stage MS who was confined to a wheelchair and needed help with everything. And I reached out to her and I was like, oh, do you want to do some one-on-one work together? Because I felt like she could understand where I was coming from at that time. I was really disabled myself. And, you know, I think that there's no one kind of person who comes into your community, but maybe the folks who are more front and center are the people who connect around like the exercise goals or like the folks who already have quite a bit going on and just want Mm -hmm. a little bit of extra 
or like some of the creative folks who are amazing in your community mm-hmm. who are working on writing or launching a business or I don't have as much sense of those what those folks are going through personally in their lives mm-hmm. that is is challenging but clearly you know wanting to do meaningful work and purposeful work I guess my my question is like is there a way to go a little bit deeper and not have mm-hmm. it be about accumulating wealth or accumulating friends or that kind of grasping for like more and more, but like actually living in the world in a way that really felt um, meaningful, which might not be social justice for everyone. There's lots of folks who are doing work on climate change, which is of course tied to social justice, but you know, maybe it's something as simple as like looking after a senior who lives down the block, who's really Mm. lonely and doesn't have anyone visiting, or there's lots of like just kind, caring ways we can interconnect. But so often some of the ways your work gets interpreted seems to be about the kind of um, like exercise, lose weight, improve my diet, you know, those, those kinds of things. And not like, how do we live in this world together in a really deep and meaningful and caring way? So I'm, Mm. I'm curious how to translate it. And that's been my experiment with your work for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years is like, how do I, cause what you offer is amazing, but how do I translate this into who I want to be in the world, which isn't necessarily the other stuff, even though self-care is important, of course. Sure. Uh, if you're someone with, you know, dealing with disability, whether you have MS or some other, like a physical disability, I'm wondering how, what's different about that perspective I imagine there's a lot different, so I'm, uh, um, but from someone who wants to like exercise and make some money and do a bunch of creative stuff, like what, what are they, what, what is this person facing that might be a different perspective? Well, there's no, I mean, there's no one experience. There's people sure. who have disabilities who are super privileged in every other way and, you know, <laughs> have all the tech and like lots of options. Sure. I guess, you know, sometimes I feel like the power of your work, but also the danger of your work is that it's a lot about shifting your own mindset. And Mm. that's so amazing. And that's most of the work I've done with people in prison is like, you are in a terrible situation. There is no sugarcoating that, but how can you still find freedom in this terrible situation while not pretending it's not a terrible situation? Mm. And I think that's an amazing thing to offer when it's tied into acknowledging the external things that are going on. But I think the danger of that is it can become like, there are no external problems. It's all Mm. in my mind. And if I just change my mindset, then there are no barriers, which ignores the day to day. So like when I was severely disabled last year, had only use of one arm and not the other arm and not my legs. You know, it wasn't a matter of like, get out into nature and experience exercise. (laughs) I couldn't do that because of the way society is set up to limit the mobility of people who are in wheelchairs. So it's at times like that in my life where I have been more disabled or more impacted um, by um, illness or by other other factors that um, relate to how society constrains people in that situation that I've felt the most frustrated with not being able to figure out how to apply your work to my own situation. Mm. What did you, what did you find? Is there, you said you've been working to translate this stuff. Uh, so what, how did you translate it for yourself in that situation? Well, I don't think I did. You know, I think mm. where I've succeeded the most in your work is when I've been more well, I still haven't found a way to like really translate what you're offering other than just embracing uncertainty rather than trying to control it and limit it. That's the one piece. And and so when you started doing the uncertainty challenges, that was a way for me back into your work again, because Mm. I'm like, oh, uncertainty. I don't know what my body's going to do next. So that was a way I could really lean in. And then in that community too, I think maybe more than some of your other communities, there's folks who are really dealing with like the uncertainty of a cancer diagnosis or um, the uncertainty of living with bipolar illness, or there's folks who are leaning into the uncertainty around those kinds of things as well. So again, an easier way for me to sort of figure out how to apply it in my day-to-day life. But yeah, when I was, you know, when I had terrible agoraphobia for years and like couldn't even leave my bedroom, I was trying to figure out how to move the bathroom into my bedroom, you know, there just wasn't really a way I could figure out to translate your work because my, 
my struggles in my life were so shrunk down at that point. Mm. And I think that your work is most um, easy to figure out how to apply when life has a few more options. So I've never, I've, like, I can't see a way into your work for the folks who I connect with in the street community. It's just not, not going to speak to their immediate reality. Like uncertainty about where you're going to sleep that night is a really, really different thing than when you're trying to create something and you feel a bit nervous about putting it out into the world. And that's not to minimize the terror yeah, of that, totally get it. but they're just different experiences. Absolutely. Well, if we take my work out of it, like the, the Leo, the Zen habit stuff out of it, what would you, what would help with someone who's dealing with that kind of uncertainty of like where you're going to sleep? I think the ability to stay present with it, you know, to not try and fix it or solve it. Folks are so resilient. Like there are people who have just become unhoused for the very first time in their lives. And that's a different situation. But mostly people have been dealing with that for a while already by the time we have a chat. Um, and they already know how to survive that and might be miserable on one particular day. Like it's really grinding them down on day where it's particularly hot, particularly cold or, you know, really rainy. And it just the frustration of the constant displacement and people being nasty to them. Like it does wear on people and they are having a particularly bad day, but mostly people know how to survive in ways that I probably wouldn't, you know, mm. I'd be much more hapless if I was in that situation. So sometimes it's just like offering to witness that someone is raging or that someone is so frustrated and to reflect that, yeah, this does suck and it's unfair mm. and it doesn't have to be this way. It's not your fault you're in this situation. It's a societal problem. So yeah, I, often I find that's what folks need is like the acknowledgement that they're human beings and it's really unfair mm. that they're in this situation. Um, people don't need me to like call a shelter. They know all the services around town already and they don't need me to rush in and, you know, offer solutions or suggestions or that's not what it's about. Yeah. But saying, oh, just stay with the things. uncertainty, open the uncertainty. Like I would never say that, <laughs> you know. Is there a way for them to, to be able to embrace the uncertainty other than saying something like that? Do you see a way in? Well, people do embrace it with humor. Mm. Humor. And I mean, in the old school days, generosity. So like some of, some of what I learned was from women in the street community who, uh, really had like a lot of uncertainty about their safety on a minute by minute basis, um, especially sex mm. workers. And the way they coped with that uncertainty was to look after each other um, and also to have extreme generosity. So people would often offer me smokes um, and would often offer me kind of the last thing that they had. And I, wow. when I started engaging with Buddhist community, I, I recognized that generosity was like the deep, a deep practice of survival and willingness mm. to trust the universe would provide what was needed instead of holding and hoarding and, you know, trying to control it that way. So that was how I saw people over and over again, really fearlessly leaning into uncertainty, that mm. willingness to give away their last whatever without any idea where they would get the next one. And I see people share food in the street community with each other all the time. Like just the other day I was at a bus shelter and there was, a woman who had just experienced some violence and was bleeding and she was really upset. And the person next to me in the bus shelter who was also visibly poor, visibly indigenous said, Hey, do you need a sandwich? And he offered his sandwich to her. And I see that all the time. It's like real ethic of care and um, willingness to give what you have to someone who's having a harder day than you are. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, I think this is stuff that I don't ever see. And just oh, you really? being able to relate these stories to me, like it brings a lot of humanity to something that I, I wanted like turn a blind eye to just because of my own discomfort. Can I ask you some questions? Yes. Ask. So I'm, I'm just surprised to hear that you don't see it because I, I think it's everywhere. Do you live in like a really small town where there aren't people who are visibly unhoused or? There are people who are visibly unhoused uh, all around. Yes. Uh, so no, it's not that they're not around. It's that I don't know. I feel uncertainty about how to interact with them. And so I might smile and, and say hi if they seem open to it. But in general, I don't have conversations. I don't know much about their lives. I, I wonder about it, but I don't uh, take the time to find out more. 
Oh, I'm sad for you. Honestly, like the, that connection for me has been one of the best things in my life. I hope that you find a way to, um, I would love to, if you drive a simple way is to stop driving, you know, take public transit and walk. Um, because yeah, being in a car cuts you off so much from interacting with yeah. people, but I, I think you'll That's find true. it a really, you know, people are lovely. <laughs> Mm. And not everyone, just like house people, you know, some people are jerks, but <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, the best jokes, the best, like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm inspired to, um, to open to that more. I think there are some people who I've passed who, uh, I, it feels like they might have like, uh, mental illness, um, issues with that. And I'm unsure how to like interact with that. Well, you're interacting right now with someone with mental illness and you're not scared of mm. me. And I mean, oh. maybe if we were in person, it'd be different and you would be, but you right. already know how to interact with people with mental illness. There's just mm. a level of a layer of stigma and fear that comes up when you see someone who like looks like they haven't had a shower in a while and they look really poor and they're talking to themselves or, right. Right. you know, um, that I've done all those things. Like I've been psychotic and been on antipsychotics and been hospitalized, but you find a way to interact with me. So mm. it's not different. It's your yeah. own, like, what do I do? You know, it's my own and I mean, if someone is like raging and, you know, using a stick to wax something or whatever, then that's not the time to like, Hey, how's it going? But <laughs> you know, yeah. someone who's just like muttering to themselves or not in any sign of distress. Yeah. This, you know, it's, it's inspiring just because like I, it's easy to just kind of like stay in my comfort zone. And, um, that's not where I'm committed to being, but like in this area, I'm just kind of like, okay, it's just easier to kind of like walk past and not think about it. Yeah. Um, but I also know you, you're curious, you're curious mm -hmm. about where you're afraid of things. So, yeah. and I've seen you lean into something that you maybe don't know about. So I know you have it in you. Oh yes, <laughs> I do. And I, I appreciate you being able to see that and acknowledge it. Thank you. Okay, let's see. There's a couple of places that you've mentioned that I want to come back to. Would that, would that be okay? Sure. Okay, so you mentioned agoraphobia, mm. and you've shared that with me in the past. And it's it strikes me um, as a really, uh, like a much more intense version of what a lot of people are facing at a much lower level. Just like, mm. it's not just like, you know, being afraid to go out, although I think... COVID has really like increased that for a lot of us. It's like not knowing how to socially interact with people and being a little bit more anxious about that. But it's, it's just like moving out of our comfort zone becomes harder and harder, especially as we reinforce our comfort. And that's kind of how I'm seeing it, but I, I haven't ever had agoraphobia. So I'm wondering if, if that feels true to you or um, maybe you can enlighten me. So, I can't claim to speak for everyone who's had agoraphobia, but I, sure. I, I do think that any kind of phobia, it's like, you know, rationally that this is not something real that's happening, but that doesn't stop the terror from overtaking your body and like the adrenaline surge and the intense panic. And what I gradually came to understand is that uh, it wasn't fear of open spaces. I I'm fine in open spaces. It was fear of engaging with people <laughs> um, right. and that that was related to past trauma. And so, um, mm. you know, for me, I would have panic come on very suddenly and very unpredictably when I was out in public and it was very embarrassing to me. So I would be, there was one incident that I remember just so vividly because it was so ridiculous. I I was in the grocery store and I opened the freezer and reached for a bag of frozen peas and then lost it. No idea why. There was nothing about that situation that wasn't something I hadn't done a zillion times before. But I was suddenly flooded with adrenaline and a, a state of dire panic that I had to get out of there right away or something terrible would happen. And, um, you know, my, for me, the panic was so intense that I would bolt. So if it happened when I was in a car, I would open the door and bolt out of a moving vehicle. So it was a very... Oh, wow. um, shaky experience for me of like not feeling in control of my own body and not feeling in control of my actions. And there were many times when I just took off and then I was like, I, don't, I have no idea where I am and I have no idea how to get home. This was before cell phones. Um, mm -hmm. And 
yeah, it was a very uh, unnerving experience for those years that I struggled that much. And so I began to shrink my world down quite intentionally because I was like, oh, I'm safe when I'm in the house. I don't experience, mm. if I'm panicking when I'm in the house, I might take no off, but it. I kind of know my neighborhood and no one will see it. It won't be so embarrassing. Um, and no one will call. I was terrified that someone would call uh, the police if they saw mm. me freaking out because I would be like, perspiring really heavily, sobbing, unable to verbally communicate often for an hour or so at a time. Um, and I was terrified that someone would, because they saw me in mental health distress, would call the police. Um, mm. And because I've done lots of work uh, against policing and have had a friend killed by the police, it was that was also mm. a very terrifying prospect for me. So I just I stopped leaving the house and it, it made sense to me at the time, you know, that I was safe inside the house. And then it started to happen inside the house. I was like, oh, I'm not really safe in the living room. I should go into my room. And I eventually kind of confined myself to this little like eight by nine foot room and kept the door shut and the, and the curtains drawn all the time. And um, my partner at that time, it was very distressing for them and very hard on them. Sure. And I have a lot of regret about that. Mm. But eventually I, I started to read about it. I hadn't seen a mental health professional because I hadn't been able to leave the house. And so I didn't understand that that was agoraphobia, but I started to look up experiences that were similar to mine to try and understand what was happening to me and gradually understood that to treat agoraphobia, you have to be willing to move outside your comfort zone. And that began for me a, a long process of um, being fine that I have panic sometimes and look weird and that it unnerves people. And, you know, but it's just, it's, it's who part of my, how I am and who I am. And it's not a big deal. And if, mm. if I'm not embarrassed, then other people's reaction is their problem. Actually, I'm not a danger to anyone. I just look in ways that for them are unnerving and that's their problem, not mine. So mm. I, I worry less about taking the bus and doing things where I'm like, man, I'm in this space with a lot of people. What if I like freak out, which has happened to me many times I have freaked out on the bus and it's been fine. <laughs> so it just, it was like, accepting that I wasn't in control of my actions and really accepting that I'm not in control of most of life <laughs> and I'm fine. You know, it, both are true. Um, so yeah. when I was kept trying to exert more control, that led me in the wrong direction. It was opening up to not being in control and that I was okay. That was for me the way out of that experience. So, such a power, like there's so much powerful stuff there that I think applies to everyone's lives uh like we don't all have you know, such intensity um and you know necessarily panic attacks or anything like that but there's some there's some elements there that i want to i want to highlight because they're important for all of us uh, and i actually think this is how it works is that we're our comfort zones shrink down smaller and smaller if we let it which is kind of the default we will let it um, if we don't actively work to expand and so like that's, you know, a very like vivid example of what can happen. And you could see this as we get older, like aging often will have this where people will have their lives, they'll travel less, they'll get out less, they'll have less friends, and they'll be more and more staying at home. It doesn't have to be older, actually. It happens in our 30s and 40s. Um, but well, and COVID did it for a lot of people who yeah. were housed, people became, I was watching everyone else's experience. And I was like, oh, people are kind of going through what I went through. And I saw that they weren't prepared for it and yeah. I didn't know what to do with it. And I had some tools already. And so I yeah. was able to kind of extend out a little bit and offer people some, some tools. But yeah, I think Amazing. collectively, and again, not everyone had the same experience of COVID. Most of my- But it happened to a lot. It happened yeah. to a lot of people. And yeah. Um, reaching back out again and being willing to experience, I mean, what a, what a wild situation to feel like if I get physically close to this person, they might kill me, you know? Yeah. And um, it reminds harm. me of the eighties, yeah. oddly enough, it reminds me of the eighties and HIV mm. and AIDS in the gay community and how people were like, Oh my God, if I, you know, if I'm intimate with you, I might die. Like just how do you overcome that kind of intense, realistic, but also can't live that way, a kind of fear of, of connection and intimacy. Yeah, it's a, it's a reasonable fear to have, you know, um, like we have good reason for it. Um, yeah, and it's, and it's visceral. It's like hard to, 
how to overcome that. And the yeah. fact that you were able to, and the, you know, what you shared was just like an acceptance of like, I'm going to, you know, look weird sometimes. I'm just going to have this experience. Yeah. And I love that acceptance of yourself. It, it actually reminds me of some of the acceptance of yourself that you, you mentioned earlier, um, like how liberating that can be. Just like letting people have their reaction. I think that's an important one as well, is we don't, we don't trust ourselves with other people's reactions. Like if someone is going to have this kind of reaction, then I don't trust myself to be able to like be with that or to deal with it or to be okay with it. So if someone else is freaking out about me freaking out, I don't trust myself around that. And you developed a lot of trust. Like it's okay if people have their reaction, like they're going to have a reaction and that's kind of their reaction to have. And it's your job to kind of like focus on, you know, what you're going through first and have some acceptance there. Well, and again, I think yeah. this ties back to the thread we were talking about around privilege. You know, that as a younger person, my ability to survive the situations, some of the situations I was in, relied on kind of pacifying the other person or trying to get them to mm. like me. or So that kind of people-pleasing as a way of survival, right? Uh, and I was never very good at it. <laughs> but I still looked to that as like, if only I figure out how to, then I won't experience so much crap, you know? And yeah. even though it never worked, it still stuck with me as that like thing to always be reaching for that if only I figure it out, then, you know, I'll be liked and approved of. And I, so I think a lot of people can us, relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. That desire to people please is so intense. And, you know, not to say that we should go around being jerks, but to understand that my survival was less conditional on other people than I maybe thought has mm. been helpful. Yeah, it's, you know, people pleasing, we can like dismiss it or like judge it, you know, I think is often what we do. Um, but it's a, it's a real desire for safety, right? And control and safety are kind of what we, our, our survival mechanisms are about. It's, like, it's not bad to want some safety, right? And if you've been in some real danger in the past, like, you know, it's a real, it's a visceral kind of like, I need some safety. So it's not just like, we can't just dismiss people who like are in their comfort zones. Like they have some good reasons for it. Um, so, but that doesn't mean that we're confined to that. Like it, what you've found uh, through your, the stories you shared is like, there's, there's possibility of stepping outside of that and practicing some acceptance and letting go of some of that control. Uh, mm -hmm. I thought that was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And that's where true safety comes from, actually, is the ability to be in a situation and to be responsive and tuned into it instead of trying to mm. control something we can't actually control. Mm. So, yeah, it was a it was a big shift. And I, I've learned so much from the folks who are in the uncertainty challenge that you run about that kind of letting go of trying to control something and instead to um, open to it and see what it has to show. I, I like to, you've mentioned the uncertainty challenge a couple of times. I'd like mm. to touch on that because um, you are someone who's gone through, I think, almost every round of it, if not every single round. No, uh, I came in late. Oh, did you? Okay. You've been through <laughs> a bunch of rounds. I came in strong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you're actually holding space for others, um, or at least, yeah, yeah, yeah providing some support. And, um, and, and so just... For people, just to give you a shorthand, uh, like what the uncertainty challenge is, it's a four-week challenge in our Fearless Living Academy. We started as a, a beta thing where it was just a small group of people doing it, and we've expanded it to the whole community. But it's taking on something that you feel some uncertainty about, whether it's a habit or some kind of purpose work or whatever it is that you're feeling some uncertainty about, and then practicing with that uncertainty um, on a nearly daily basis and having some people around you for some support and some accountability and actually working with our ability to be with uncertainty. Um, am I missing anything from that description? No, it's great. Okay, great. Um, and so we're, I'm learning a lot from, we're learning a lot from people who are going through this, but I've been seeing some really amazing, um, amazing things happen within the community. And I give you um, a lot of credit. Um, you know, there's others as well. So not just you, but you've been really amazing. Like some of the most incredible qualities have come out. Uh, you've always had them and you've 
done this in other places, but I've seen it there in the uncertainty challenge. So I really acknowledge you for the generosity that you are, the love and compassion that you are, and just that incredible presence. Thanks. I, you know, when we talked about doing this podcast, it wasn't at all to plug the uncertainty challenge. <laughs> sure. It's just, <laughs> so it's not like, oh yeah, now I'm going to subtly work in the uncertainty challenge. No, but I know. It's been so influential I did that, in my not life. You. <laughs> really? Like I, I, I'm talking about it with lots of people because it's, right. it's been so helpful at a time when I'm going through tremendous uncertainty that can't really be worked on in the challenge there. My dad is dying and um, someone who I was really, really close with and was a caregiver to for years died in January. So it's, mm. it's a time of just that uncertainty of how do I experience the world without the people who've been closest in my heart for a while. And, sure. you know, there's no like, I'm going to take half an hour a day and work on that. But through working on other things where there is more of a container, I, I've just found it so um, helpful to be able to practice being with uncertainty and learning to fall in love with it, really. Mm. Yeah, which helps me a lot to, to um, deal with the impending loss of my dad and, and the grief still about my friend. So, yeah, it's been really, yeah. and the connections and the, the people who do it are just such depth of um, willingness to engage in hard things. Mm. Yeah, it's sometimes hard in the society to find people who want to lean into hard things. People are like, how can I avoid hard things? So to find <laughs> like-minded people who are like, curious and like, that feels hard. I want to do it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I I actually think there's more people are more like that than they even real give themselves credit for. Mm. Um, but yeah, just to to have other people like yourself who are there saying yes to that, uh, it it creates permission for people to actually say yes to it. It's like, oh, could I? You know. So again, I get I, I acknowledge you for that. Could I ask you? Could you give us an example of something that you have worked on in the uncertainty challenge that's been uh, it was really beneficial to work with. Sure. So I mentioned recently we moved to another city um, mm -hmm. and it's a city I've never lived in before and had only visited once, twice before. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know anyone here mostly. Um, and there's a lot that's unfamiliar to me. It was a move across provinces. So there's a lot that's just unfamiliar. And I was pretty miserable. I expected that the move would be a little bit destabilizing to my mental and physical health, but I didn't really expect that it would be so destabilizing. And I was just really miserable the first month here and uh, felt like I had kind of stepped back month, well, years, really. I was having a lot of panic again and just really afraid to do everything. And I didn't feel okay in our house and like nothing felt okay. And so I decided as uh, for the four weeks of um, the most recent uncertainty challenge to have a target of doing one hour a day to do something around embracing life here. Uh, with the vision that I would feel rooted and joyful in our new home. Mm. And so for an hour a day, I was like, what can I do today that will be really about celebrating here? And it completely changed over the course of just four weeks from wow. being totally miserable and feeling super overwhelmed to actually being really excited to be here and loving the house, um, loving, uh. yeah, just loving being here. So I was really surprised at how it shifted so quickly, once I put in the dedicated time to actually doing some of the things that needed to be done here. So, so incredible to hear that. Uh, I'm, I'm inspired and moved uh, by not just this, but everything that you've shared. Um, I'd like to, oh, well, thank you for sharing all of that. Like, it's just such an incredible thing. And what I want to say from this and a number of other examples that you've um, shared here, like your agoraphobia story and really just like a lot of the, the things you've been sharing is uh, I really acknowledge you for just having this intention to work with some things that can be really uncomfortable, really hard. Like, you know, you talked about terror, like that's not easy stuff. And yet like you standing here before me today, it feels like you're a completely transformed person from that person. Like, it's not that you don't have the same beautiful human heart that you always had, but like, I wouldn't have guessed that you've gone through that agoraphobic phase and, you know, a lot of other things that you've had to go through in your life. Um, and it's just really incredible just showing the possibility of, of the kind of work that you've done, the self-acceptance and the like loving way of moving yourself out of your comfort zone and the incredible intentions that you've shown 
I just want to acknowledge that kind of transformation that you've modeled for us. Well, it's not, I mean, I really can't, I don't know how to explain this. Mm. It's not like those things don't still happen. You know, like this has been part of one of the frustrating things for me with dealing with, for example, being on disability benefits is Mm. I'm happy. I'm not miserable. I have worked really, really hard to be happy with my life. And so periodically when they reassess me, you know, they're like, well, if you're not miserable, then we're going to kick you off benefits. I'm like, I'm still disabled. Like I still don't sleep sometimes for long stretches of time. And I, I still have panic. You know, it's not like those things went away. away. I, and it's, it's really, I think the person who's most helped me is Mm. a Zen priest named Claude Anshin Thomas, who Mm. uh, was in the Vietnam war as a young man and has still really severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And you know, he showed me that the PTSD didn't go away. He just learned to develop a different relationship to it. And that's right. So it's this, it's this funny thing of like assumption that, you know, if you're happy, then you must be over it or like put it behind mm. you or, and it's not like that. It's, it's just that it's become integrated into my life in a way where I'm not struggling with it in the same ways that I used to, but it still yeah. impacts my life on a day-to-day basis, if that makes sense. hundred percent makes sense. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that because the way that I put it, it might seem like it's all gone. <laughs> you don't have to deal with that anymore. And yeah. I love that you share that, that that's still there. You're still dealing with it. Um, and yet your relationship to it's changed. Thank People you love the transformation that. story. You know, they love the, like, from, you know, this terrible <laughs> situation to like, suddenly I see that all the time in how people relate to folks who are unhoused. Again, just looping back to what we were talking mm. about earlier. It's like people love the, you know, I was miserable and on the streets and using drugs. And then I like went into rehab. It's magic. And, yeah. yeah. And it, <laughs> I mean, for some people, if that's their story, then wonderful. And they should get acknowledged for it. But I think for many of us, it's, it's more like we continue to struggle, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm glad you shared that. Crappy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm glad you shared that. And that, that is, you know, I haven't had to deal with any of those things, but I, you know, in my own transformation, that's actually what I've seen as well. People, people see, you know, maybe it's because my fault. Maybe I've only shared the good stuff, but they see the outer change and they're like, oh, Leo did all of these things. And so, you know, he's kind of doesn't have to deal with all of that stuff anymore. And it's not true. Like I still struggle with a lot of the stuff, whether it's food or body image or like financial struggles or, you know, self-acceptance, all of that kind of stuff, still very much there. You know, I'm not comparing myself to your situation, but just acknowledging that that's, that's a truth, um, is that it doesn't all go away, but I, I feel a lot more capable to deal with all of that stuff now because like you said, my relationship to it has changed, but it's still, still all there. Still, still the same, uh, threads of Leo still coming, kind of, uh, very much present. So I just really encourage you to bring that to your work because I think I've seen a number of teachers or leaders really struggle with Mm. trying to present an image that is like, I have succeeded, I have overcome. And actually the people who've helped me the most are the ones who are really vulnerable and really messed Mm. up and like really honest about, you know, it's, it's possible to be a good human being and still we flail, you know, even with all the tools and like, that's, there's, you're not doing it wrong. If that's your experience, that's what it is to be a human being. And I, yeah, I've, I've seen so many Buddhist teachers and other teachers really struggle with trying to portray an image to their students that their students expect of them often mm. of really having it all figured out. And um, yeah. it's, well, I definitely it's don't. Yeah. 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 But that's, that's one of the beautiful things about you that makes you accessible to the rest of us mortals mm. is your like us, you know, <laughs> I'm human. you don't have it figured out either. Yeah, you know, you're no. just trying to flail your way through as we all are and we can yeah. take care of each other as we flail together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'd like to close here. Um, but I want to thank you just like for the humanness that you've brought, even just in this moment, you know, just right before I started talking, um, to the moment when you first started talking, like you've shared so much humanity throughout all of this. And I really think that's one of your gifts is that you get us back in touch to that, to the humanity that we are 
accepting it, loving it, seeing it in each other, connecting with it. Um, it's been a gift to me over the years. And then here on this, on this call, um, you know, kind of sharing with me, like, these are just humans that you can just talk to and connect to on a human level. I needed to hear that message. And I thank you for that being that message in the world. Also, while we're in this conversation, I'd like to tell you about my Fearless Living Academy, which is a monthly membership program that I've created. We've been running it for a few years now, and it has all of my best courses on changing your habits, on finding your purpose, and on creating an impact on the world that feels meaningful to you. We have a community section. We have a monthly uncertainty challenge, which is really powerful, a way to dive deeper into this stuff. And if there's something that you want to create in the world, this is the place to go. So check it out. It's at zenhabits.net slash fearless, and you'll be taken to a page to learn more about it. Fearless Living Academy, please check it out today. I love your work, Leo, and I'm so grateful for all that you continue to bring to community. So thank you. I'm sure we'll have many more conversations to come. (laughs) Oh, yes, I hope so. Okay. Thank you, Joshua. Bye. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with someone you know who cares deeply. That would be really meaningful to me. And if you'd like to dive deeper with me into this work, please check out the blog at zenhabits.net or get in touch at leo at zenhabits.net. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join me every Wednesday for more episodes of the Zen Habits Podcast.